All right, good morning. How are we? Y'all good? Awesome. So it's a new year. Is that good? I feel like it's a good thing. It's a fresh start. I was reminded this morning as I was reading my devotional, I've got a particular devotional that I read every Sunday morning that gets me uh, ready to be at church, and it's a really great book. It's uh, Sunday's Matter, I think is what it's called, but anyway, great, great book. And it talks about gospel forgetfulness and why we need the church. And, and it just reminded me this morning why I need you and why you need me and why we need each other and all the things. It's to remind us that God's mercies are new every morning. So not only are they new every year, you get a fresh new start, but if you're in Christ, you get a fresh new start every single day. And man, praise God for that. Man, I don't know about you, but I know that I need a fresh start every single day. So we're going to begin a new series this year in 1 Corinthians. I've called it Messy Church. It won't take you long to figure out why. Um, so it's going to be a fun uh, study as we look at one of the very first churches that Paul planted and how God redeemed some pretty wild stuff. So pretty cool. So... Um, the church is filled with hypocrites. Ever heard that? I don't need church because they're just a bunch of judgmental hypocrites. Heard that a few times. It seems like the world around us looks at the church and expects us to be perfect. You know, for whatever reason, that seems to be a thing that when they look at us, my, my goodness, well, you know, they ought to be perfect. And so when a pastor fails, when you see, I mean, goodness, if you see a pastor fail morally, it's like the unbelieving culture applauds. When we should be sad, they applaud. And I think it's because there's this kind of thing that hovers around Christianity, it hovers around the church that, that expects us to be perfect. And, and there was a season in my life where I, I kind of struggled with that too. I remember in seminary, um, it was a great time in my life. I mean, I get an opportunity to go and study from some of the brightest um, minds in the Christian world today. And man, I dove into that. And I remember I went through a class where we studied solely the book of Acts. And I remember taking this deep dive into Acts and in Acts chapter two and then Acts chapter four, there's this picture that you get of, man, it just seemed like the church was perfect. It's like they had it all together. They loved one another. They cared about one another. They were hungry for the word. They showed up. They were eager to hear uh, preaching and teaching. They weren't thinking about the cowboys or lunch or, or any of those things, right? They were hungry for what God was doing and God did amazing things in their, in their midst. And it's just, it's just, God, you read that and you think, man, why is the church not like that today? Why are we so distracted? Why do we have all these things that distract us? And man, it just seems like they just didn't have those things, right? And I went to a mentor of mine and I, and I kind of brought this to him. He was my boss at my former church and I just said, hey, I, I struggle with this picture that I see in Acts and the picture I see in the church today and I can't reconcile the two. Why does this not look like this? And he kind of laughed. He said, oh, Logan, ha, ha, ha. He said, have you ever read 1 Corinthians? I was like, well, yeah, of course I have. I've read everything. I know everything. <laughs> and he said, you need to go read 1 Corinthians. I want you to think about 
the question that you're asking, why does the church today not look like the church, you know, in the first century? And I said, okay, cool. So I did that. I went and I opened up the Bible. I started reading 1 Corinthians and I was shocked. It's like, these people are crazy. They are really, really messy. And so I came back to him and I, he said, well, so what'd you think? And I said, man, they had a lot going on in Corinth. And he said, you're right. And he said, the reason being is because the church is people and people are messy. And so therefore the church is messy. But the beautiful part of 1 Corinthians, what it teaches us is that God intervenes into the mess. God intervenes uh, through the gospel, right? He begins to transform our mess and take ashes and make something beautiful out of it. And that's the story of 1 Corinthians. This is one of Paul's first churches that he ever planted. In Acts chapter 18, you can read of the story of what happened there. Paul was there for a year and a half preaching the gospel. This church is planted. It explodes. It grows so much so that that they didn't have a room big enough like this to fit all of the people uh, together to worship with one another. So it ends up being a collection of house churches. You've got a ton of really great things that are happening. Um, a Corinth is, is a prestigious university, uh, it's not a prestigious university, but it's a, uh, a, a big influential city. And so you had both Jews and Greeks there. You had all kinds of people, everything in between that were gathering there. So it was very diverse and kind of a cool city. So you had a lot of things going on. And so Paul is very affectionate towards this church. He'd spent a lot of time there. He planted this church. He had moved on to continue his missionary journeys. And then unfortunately, Paul hears from a friend of his that things aren't going so well in Corinth. Crazy enough, people are people and people are messy. And so Paul hears of this mess. He finds out that they've got division among them. They've got some distorted views on sexuality. They've got some kind of wild things happening in the church service. And so Paul writes and says, hey, listen, we need to be a church of order. God's a God of order. We need to be a people of order. Uh, there were some people who were saying that the resurrection doesn't matter. You know, and so there was some heresy that entered into the church. There was all kinds of stuff that's happening in the church. And so Paul begins to write to them and says, hey, this shouldn't be the case. This shouldn't be the case. And so that's what you're gonna see in the first four weeks is how Paul is writing to this group of people who, to be honest, are just doing the best that they can, just like you and me, right? They're just trying to do the best that they can, trying to figure out life. And somewhere along the way, they got off the beaten path. And so Paul's writing to them and showing them how the gospel brings them back to the right path the right journey, and so that's what we're going to talk about today, specifically as it relates to division. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and meet me in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul opens the letter. He establishes his credibility as an apostle. This is important. Paul points them to the greater authority, not Paul himself, but God. He says that God is your authority, Right? Paul is just a mouthpiece from, of the Lord. He talks about that they are not Paul's people, but they are God's people. That's another important part when we start talking about division and all these different things that we're gonna dive into this morning. It's important that you know that they're God's people, not Paul's people, that God's the final authority, not Paul. Um, and so, so here we are in verse four. 
Verse four, Paul's writing, he says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. Notice this, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech, all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. Hear this, so that you were not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, Paul says, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ. So Paul hears this report that something is broken in Corinth. And so he's writing to try to heal that which is broken and bring restoration and wholeness and healing to the church in Corinth. And he begins with what they're doing right and the blessing that they've experienced. He says that they have an abundance of gifts. They have an abundance of wisdom and knowledge. In fact, what he's saying here is that Corinth, you don't realize how good you have it. You have all the best teachers. You have financial stability. You have gifts galore. You have experienced so much that very few churches have ever experienced. In fact, they were living in abundance. That's one of the strongest aspects of the church of Corinth, that they were living in abundance. It's one of their greatest strengths. But maybe you've heard the phrase that oftentimes some our, our greatest strengths are also our greatest weaknesses. See, that's what you're gonna find in the church in Corinth, that their greatest strength is being abundance is also kind of leading them to one of their greatest weaknesses. They have everything that they could ever need and yet somehow, some way, they are a mess. Now, you may be wondering, how in the world can you have everything that you need, all the, fi- the finances that you need, all the Sunday school teachers that you could possibly want, you have all the volunteers, every door has a greeter. How in the world could you guys be a mess? You have all that you need. Well, several years ago, a good friend of mine, we were having lunch and he said something to me that really stuck with me and it's kind of it's been one of those things, you know when you hear something profound that you can't let go of it, it just, it's, it's back there and it's filed away and, and you think about it often. This is one of those statements and here's what he said. He said, innovation is born in starvation. Innovation is born in starvation. It means that, When we have nothing, we have to be creative with what we have. We grow because in starvation, we have to think different. We have to be creative. We have to go outside of the box in order to survive. So innovation is born in starvation, right? Well, I also think that the opposite is true as well, that when we have everything, creativity and innovation lack, Right? In other words, in times of abundance, when we have everything that we need, we can easily fall into entitlement. We can find ourselves apathetic. And it's in this place that we find that our growth is limited, that our potential is limited. I think in a very real sense, this is what's happening to the church in Corinth. They were so blessed that they became entitled and apathetic in their faith and their walk with Christ, that it gave way to a whole lot of different things. And in this particular case, it gave way to division that was breaking out in the church. And in verse 10, Paul begins to write against the division that he is hearing about in the church. Here's what he says in verse 10. 
you kind of get the pastoral heart of Paul here in verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers. It's like I'm pleading with you by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and with the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, well, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, which means Peter, or I follow Christ. And then note this, Paul asks a really, really, really good question. He says, is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you or was it Christ? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? He says, I thank God that I baptized no one of you except for Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. He makes a comment. He says, I did baptize also the house of Stephanus, but beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to, be, to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. So here Paul has identified the first problem in Corinth, that they have divisions that are breaking out into the church. In fact, what it really is, it's a, it's a popularity contest. It's like we went back to middle school. And honestly, that's how Paul treats it. He's like, are we serious? Are we really going to go back to middle school where you sit over here and you sit over here and we have these cliques that break out into the church? And, and to be honest, this is something that we've all been guilty of in the church. How many times have you ever walked into a church that felt cliquish? You know, I remember when I was a kid, we were in, I was in eighth grade, um, my Christmas break, but in my eighth grade year, we moved to Houston and we were trying to find a church and all this kind of stuff. And I remember walking into youth group after youth group after youth group. And it's like, man, nobody even said anything to me. I felt like an outsider. You know, that was a real experience for me. How many churches do you know that are cliquish? And Paul's gonna say this should not be the case. In Corinth, they're dividing over uh, kind of, again, a popularity contest. Some people are saying, well, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow uh, Peter. And those who are super spiritual say, well, I follow Jesus. And they're dividing over these different groups. And you may be thinking, well, why in the world are they, are they doing that? Why are they breaking up into these different groups? Why do they find themselves doing that? Well, I think... I think the answer is pretty simple. I think the answer is that every one of us, everybody in this room, we all have a story, right? You were born in a particular time um, to a particular set of parents in a family unit. Um, and, and, and because of all those things, we all have our own experiences. And those experiences have a way of shaping our identity and our identity has a way of shaping the way that we view and we see the world. So if you grew up and, and you were born in America, you're an American, you were raised in America, you're gonna have a different perspective and lens in which you view the world than let's say somebody who grew up in Europe or even China. Even the majority of us who grew up as Americans, we also have different experiences in the way that we grew up and a different lens by which we see the world, whether that's the generation you grew up in, 
you know, whether that's social class, whether that's ethnicity, whether that's family makeup, whether you grew up with two parents or one parent or, uh, you know, whatever it is, those things have a way of shaping the way that you see the world. A great example would be if you have a family member who was raised in the Great Depression, right? I know my, uh, my grandparents and great-grandparents, I knew them well, and Several of them grew up in the Great Depression. And man, I tell you, they saw the world a whole different way than I saw the world, right? Like I don't clean out solo cups, right? I, got, I just throw the solo cup away. Well, we recycle, but we recycle, we recycle. <laughs> We're good stewards of the environment. I just throw that bad boy away. I'm not gonna clean out a Ziploc bag. But if you grew up in that era, you might have done that. You see the world differently than a generation, um, the next generation. And hear me, perspective is not right or wrong, right? You may have a different perspective on the world than I do, but that doesn't make you any more right and it doesn't make me any more wrong. In the same way, it doesn't make me any more right and you any more wrong. It's just a different perspective based on the the world that that you've been born into, right? And so I think in many different ways, this is true of all of us, including all of these men that are mentioned here who are the teachers in Corinth. They all have a story, um, right? And the people who are in the church all have a story, right? There's a group of people who say, well, I follow Paul. Well, if you know much about Paul, Paul was born into a strict Jewish family, right? Um, And so his core message, if you were to look at Paul's core message, you really read all of his letters, you're gonna see that his core message is freedom in the gospel. That's Paul's core message based on the perspective that he has in his life, based on the story of his world, right? And so for the folks who identify with Paul, man, they, they identify with his message. They, they claim him as their pastor, right? Which is nothing wrong with that. Maybe they grew up in a Jewish home that they also had a very similar story. And so they identify well with Paul. So Paul became their pastor, right? Then you have Apollos. There was a group of folks who were identifying with Apollos. Uh, We don't know a whole lot about him, but we know that he grew up in Egypt from a town called Alexandria. Alexandria was a prestigious university town. So really important town. And and so when when Apollos shows up, he kind of shows up with, with, with a little next level intelligence. You might wanna think of like Boston and Harvard be kind of a very similar thing. And so he shows up to Corinth and he's super smart. He knows the Old Testament really, really, really well. He's a great teacher, a little charismatic in personality, all of those things. And so there's a group of people in Corinth who identify with him and they relate to him. Again, it's not a bad thing. It's just part of what happens when you identify with certain people. Then there's Peter. We all know Peter, right? Peter was one of the original apostles, uh, original disciples. He was in Jesus's inner circle. He was in three, right? He was Jesus's right-hand guy. Uh, Jesus said on Peter's confession, he will build his church. So Peter represents a really important point in church history. And so Peter, also a Jew, who has a tendency to be a little charismatic, jumps out there before everybody else does, a good leader, all of those things. And there's probably a group of people who just identify with him, who like his personality. And so they start kind of following Peter. And then there's the group of folks who say, oh no, I just follow Jesus. These are those people that I would consider to be the purists, the extra spiritual 
people, right? These are the people who discount what any of the other apostles would say, and you know, they're just gonna follow Jesus, which is, again, not necessarily a bad thing, although it becomes a bad thing. So a good example of that in today's day are a group of people called the Red Letter Christians. Maybe you've heard of this group. These are a group of folks who, they, literally, they only adhere to the red letter text that you may see in most translations of the New Testament. So that's a red letter group of Christians. They discount the whole counsel of God's word and they just focus and they follow these particular words. That's this group of people. They're anti-authoritarian by nature and would say something like, well, I don't need the church or I don't need the Bible necessarily to follow Christ or to be a Christian, right? So that would be kind of this group that Paul is describing here. And so what ends up happening is they become divided And the way they become divided is not because they're identifying with these teachers or because they like them. They're dividing because it becomes a popularity contest. It becomes this thing where like, oh, you're one of Apollos' guys. Oh, you're one of Paul's gals. Oh, you're a a Peterite. Oh, be like, oh, you're a Methodist. Oh, (laughs) bless your heart. Bless your heart. Oh, gosh, you're an Episcopalian. Jeez. Oh, a Baptist. Oh, gosh. You hate all things fun, right? <laughs> like, like that's, what's, that's what's happening here, right? So it's not, a, it's not a bad thing that they follow Apollos. It's not a bad thing that they follow Peter. It's not a bad thing that they're claiming to follow Peter. It only becomes a bad thing when they start judging one another and putting their group above another group. And all of a sudden, we're no longer for one another, but we're against one another, And so what Paul says is, this should not be so. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, hey, is Christ divided? How in the world could Christ be divided? He's one body, one flesh, and he calls the church his body, right? And by the way, this is far before there were ever denominations, right? In John 17, Jesus says that we should be one, Not two, not 20, not 30, not 40, but we should be one. And that's not to mean that denominations are a bad thing, right? But we need to be able to look above denominationalism, above our divisions to say, hey, we're on the same team. We have one goal, one purpose, and we need to be for one another in effort to be a healthy body of Christ, both globally and locally, And so again, they're dividing over a popularity contest. And Paul's like, why in the world would we do that? Why are we going to have a popularity contest when we are all one? We've been born of the same spirit, one baptism, one savior who unites us all. So that's what Paul's going to say. Now he mentions this baptism thing and it's kind of weird because you think, why in the world is Paul bringing up baptism? Well, one of the weird things that happened in Corinth at this particular point is not only were they identifying with these certain teachers, but they also took a, an, an elevated view of baptism. And so if I were to baptize you, what they would think in the first century is that I am now your final authority, right? Because I baptized you. You were somehow or another baptized in my name. And so when they're saying, 
you know, I follow Paul, Apollos, or I follow Paul, what they're saying is not only do I identify with them as my pastor, my teacher, but, but they're also my final authority, right? And so there's this popularity contest, but at the same time, there's also this little bit of heresy that's worked its way into their church too, that is discrediting Christ and the name of Christ and the authority of Christ and the authority of his word for the authority of a man, And again, Paul says, whoa, whoa, whoa. How how in the world did y'all get here? How in the world did you elevate a man's words over God's words? And in the next three weeks, we're gonna unpack all of that. And Paul's gonna say that, that the wisdom of God is far greater than the wisdom of man. How in the world can we be content with the wisdom of man when we have the whole counsel of God's word? And so it's a calling for the church to be healthy. And to be healthy means that we are united And also it means that Christ is our final authority, that his word, his whole counsel is our final authority. And so you shouldn't just listen to what I say, but you should listen to what God's word says. And that's why it's important that we preach God's word and we don't get up here and I just tell you what I think. Because you shouldn't follow me, you should follow God. And the way you follow God is to be a student of his word. Now, just for fun, just for some giggles in our new year, 2024, I want you to think about something. How have you, as an individual, contributed to division in the local church? Just think about it. Just think about it. One of the unique things that you and I get to experience um, in the day and time in which we live is that we live in a time of abundance when it comes to Christianity. I mean, think about it, right? We've got a church on every corner, you know, and if, if there's not one, one's being planted, right? We live in the Bible Belt and there's a lot of benefit to that. Um, and yet at the same time, there's also some hardship that comes with that. We live in a day and time where you can access Uh, any church's messages at any given point. All you gotta do is go to YouTube. You can subscribe to different channels and you can hear from all kinds of different pastors like that. You can go to Amazon. You can go to Barnes and Nobles if that's even still a thing. And you you can buy a book written by a pastor and you can get their perspective. We have churches that have different styles of worship. You have churches that have different types of liturgy. I mean, it's like a buffet. It's like Golden Corral of Christianity. A little bit of everything for everybody, right? So there's all these different things. There's even different philosophies. You may know about this, you may not, but in the 90s, there was a church growth movement that started where it was all about reaching the lost. And so we, for whatever reason, we kind of for, uh, forsook the, forsaked, uh, forsake, there we go. We forsake the, the growing up of Christians because we wanted to reach all the lost and we wanted to have megachurches and all those things. Again, it wasn't a bad philosophy, but it, it hurt us in some ways, right? And the other end of the spectrum, it's like we wanna grow, 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 but we don't wanna reach new people. And it wasn't a bad thing, but it's hurt us in some ways, right? And so you've had all of these kind of plethora of churches that have popped up and there's one on every corner and all these different things. And, and while that's a beautiful thing, it's a beautiful thing, it's an amazing thing, it's a gift, just like what was happening in Corinth, they didn't lack a thing, we don't lack a thing. It can also become one of our greatest weaknesses. 
It can be perilous to us. See, in abundance, church can be something that we do when we need it. It's always gonna be there, so man, we can just do it when we need it. Can you imagine the underground church of China saying that? I mean, they go to church because they're desperate for it. We go to church oftentimes because it's convenient. It's what we're supposed to do. You know, they're hungry for it. I mean, their lives live on the fellowship and the word that is taught in the singing, right? So church on every corner, we can go when it's convenient. As soon as we don't like something, get our way, we can just leave and go to another one. A friend of mine, we were talking about this the other day. They said, anytime you leave the church, you entered into the front door, you ought to leave out of the front door. How many churches or how many folks in churches have come in the front door and decided that they don't like something or they didn't get their way and then they left out of the back door? Is that really healthy? Is that a healthy way to honor the fellowship and the community that God has blessed you with? But when we have a church on every corner, we can do that. You can do that. If we don't like the preaching of one preacher or the worship or whatever, man, we can get online and we can just become, we can have a house church in our home and just watch church online. Who would have thought we'd be there? That's crazy. We don't like to worship. Well, somebody else has a different worship style. We can just go down the, down the street, right? Different philosophies, different styles, all these different things. We can just go find another church. Yet all the while, the church is hemorrhaging, right? Like our growth is stunted. If, if we don't ever talk with one another and work through things, can you imagine a marriage where if you just decided, well, man, I, sorry, babe, I just... I don't really like the way you brush your teeth anymore. You know, the way you pour that glass of orange juice is offensive. Do you know you snore? I'm out. Can you imagine? I mean, but that's kind of where we're at as the church. We just decide we don't like something. And so we just leave all the while. How's that helping the church? How is that encouraging the church? How is that building up the church? You know, the other thing that it does is it pits churches up against each other. You know, when I was a kid, it almost felt like my youth ministry was in competition with all the other youth ministries in town. It's like you had to have the coolest, best thing. And if you didn't, you weren't gonna reach the cool kids. And then if the cool kids didn't show up, then you weren't gonna reach anybody. And so we're like this, in this weird competition, all the while there's all these lost people that nobody's reaching. So Paul is saying when we're focused on being divisive towards one another, we're not focused on reaching the people that God's placed us here to reach. And then who wins? Who wins when we're just shifting sheep around and not really reaching the loss that God has placed us here to reach? And so again, what Paul is saying here is this ought not be the case. This is not healthy. This is a mess that... 
quite frankly, our abundance has lent itself to. And so Paul says, look, this is how the gospel transforms all of that. What he's gonna say in the next couple of weeks is, is that the gospel actually transforms our hearts, helps us to grow up into maturity so that we don't leave when we don't get our way, but we actually lean in and we have conversations and we learn from one another and we learn from our perspectives and we grow together like a healthy marriage. We grow together, understanding that conflict is not always a bad thing. Oftentimes it can be a good thing if it's done with humility and love. But he's also gonna say that we ought to love one another and not just love one another in these walls, but we ought to love one another across the street. We ought to love the churches in our community. We ought to pray for them. We ought to be for them. But we also ought to be for the big C church all across the globe, recognizing that while we don't always agree, and that's okay, it's okay to agree to disagree so long as we do it well and maturely. He says we're to be for one another, to root for one another, to come together for the sake of those who do not know the name of Jesus so that they may be born into the spirit and invited into the family of God. Invited into the family of God. That's what we're here to do. That's why we exist. As a church, you and I, this church, First Baptist Belden, exists not for us, although it's not less than that, but we exist for this community and for the globe so that every, every, every person, every tongue will proclaim the name of Jesus as Lord. That's why we exist. Will you pray with me? Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. God, I'm so grateful that as we're gonna see all throughout 1 Corinthians, you don't leave us in our mess, but you redeem what is broken in us. You unite us together. You unite us first in Christ, but then you unite us with one another so that we can be a tangible expression of the gospel in our community, that the lost may come to find you. They might experience a relationship with you. It might be transformed from the inside out. God, I pray that we would push against division and that we would embrace unity in whatever that looks like. God, I pray that over the next couple of weeks as we continue to talk about this theme of division and unity and what we rally around versus what we, what we disagree on and all those things, Lord, I pray that you would help us to have um, ears to hear, hearts to receive, and that you would give us a hungry appetite for your word and for what you would have for us as a church family. God, we thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen.